Well, good morning. Um, we're going to continue in um, our Easter series called This Changes Everything. And this morning, we're going to be looking at the cross of Jesus and in particular, his crucifixion. I've pulled two different texts um, out of the Gospels, one coming from the Gospel of Matthew, which is the first book of the New Testament, and the other coming from the Gospel of John, which is the fourth book of the New Testament. Both are describing the same event, but both are uh, featuring different aspects of Jesus' crucifixion, as you will see this morning. And both are highlighting a different aspect of it. Um, but we're just going to look at particularly at the three phrases from these passages. So the first comes from Matthew 27, verses 45 through 46. If you have a bulletin, you can see it there. And it reads this. Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, saying Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And now from John 19, verses 28 through 30. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. This is God's word. There is a story that I think could be one of the top ten stories that has dramatically shifted the, way, the course of history um, in the history of, of mankind. And it's a story that I'm almost certain most of you have never heard of. It's the story of the battle of Milvian Bridge. Just out of curiosity, if I said the battle of Milvian Bridge, I'd love to see a show of hands. Who even knows what the battle of the Milvian Bridge is? Yeah, exactly. I think it's one of the most significant events historically in the history of mankind. Here was the Battle of Milvian Bridge. The Battle of Milvian Bridge was fought on October 28th in the year 312. In this battle, two Roman armies would clash with the victor becoming the emperor of Rome. One of these armies was led by the Roman leader from the north named Constantine. The other was led by the leader of Rome, Maxentius. Now, Maxentius had a far superior army, both in its tactical positioning and in its manpower. And because of this, Maxentius' confidence in winning this battle was so much so on display that he left the defense of Rome to go to the bridge known as Milvian Bridge, which crossed the Tiber River, where Constantine was. Now, you must understand something about Roman armies and battles at the time. If an army was going to lose the battle, they would turn on their commander. They would surrender to the other commander and give allegiance to him. And then in turn, they would kill their commander. And so it's a pretty big deal to lead a group of men into battle against a, a far superior army. Well, this is what Constantine did. And as you can imagine, Constantine on the night before the battle, he was sweating bullets. Don't you think? If I don't win this battle, 
I'm going to die. Well, as history has it, at least with what we've come to understand, something happened on the night before the battle. Constantine had a dream. And he saw the sun in this dream. And in this dream, when he saw the sun, it was the object of his own worship. The sun was his God. As weird as that it sounds, historically people have worshipped the sun. And the sun was there, but over the sun, overlaid on top of the sun, the S-U-N. I know that we can talk about the S-O-N in the church. I'm talking about the sun. Overlaid on top of it was the sign of the cross. And underneath the sun with the sign of the cross on top of it were these Latin words which translated in this sign prevail. In this sign prevail. He sees the cross and he says, in this sign prevail. And he thought, wait a minute. This is the sign of Christians. I'm going to go ahead and worship this God. And so in the morning, when all the soldiers woke up, he called all of his soldiers together and said, hey, we're, we're outnumbered and they're going to kill us. But do this. Put the sign of the cross on your shields. And so the men listening to their commander said, okay. They put the sign of the cross on their shields and they went into battle against a far superior army. And as history has it, Constantine and his inferior army routed the far superior army in Maxentius. From that day forward, Constantine would become the lone emperor of Rome. And from that day forward, Constantine would legalize Christianity, which up to that point in the history of Rome had never been legalized. And Christians could then openly come out and worship God in freedom. Don't you see what I'm trying to show you? That we can easily see how the sign of the cross changed the course of history. Now, it's a story. And it's true. That, that literally happened. But is that really the significance of the cross? Is the cross just something that we wear or, or sign on our, on our chest to try to get what we want? Or is there something more significant? I, I, I'm trying to argue that the cross changes everything. The cross of Jesus changes everything. But what I'm trying to help us understand is it might not change things the way we think it does. So I want to ask you this question before we jump in to study God's word. How would you describe the significance of the cross for you? Is it just some superstitious kind of like you lean back on that and you say, hey, I got the cross. I'm covered. I can go out into battle. Or is it? more significant than death. I'd argue that indeed the cross of Christ is far more significant than just some superstitious symbol that we can use in our life to gain from. It's something that will change your life completely. Well, this morning I want to observe the cross of Christ. And the way we're going to observe the cross of Christ is by looking at three sound bites of Jesus while he is hanging on the cross. This morning's passages that I read are, 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 are passages that capture Jesus while he's already hanging on the cross. If you have no idea what the cross of Jesus is, you can kind of see it behind me. 
It looked very much like this. And it was a Roman torture device. This is what the Roman army would use to torture criminals and people who are disobedient to them. And Christians say that Christ, the one we follow, was hanging on one of those torture devices. And while he was hanging on one of those torture devices, he actually utters seven things, but we're just looking at three today. And those three that we're going to look at today really do help us understand what the cross is all about and how it significantly changes everything that we know it as it is. It's not just some superstitious symbol that can conquer armies that are far superior. It's something that can change the course of your life. And I want to study that with you this morning. So we're going to look at the three sound bites we found in our passages of Scripture. The three are this. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's the first sound bite. The second sound bite you'll see is this. I thirst. And the third sound bite of Jesus, it is finished. And looking at these things, we'll then jump down and make very applicable statements based off of the things that we learn from these sound bites. But to the sound bites first. The first sound bite we see is Jesus saying, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani, which translated is, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Before he utters this in Matthew 27, the writer of this gospel says that a darkness had fallen over the land in the middle of the day. And for three hours, darkness was over the earth. At the end of three hours, Jesus utters those words. And what we can say about these words is that while it might not be a physical darkness, even though we just experience a physical darkness in Jesus' world, we can say it was a spiritual darkness. It was a dark night of the soul where the presence of God was no longer being experienced by Jesus. Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, these are some of the most difficult words in the New Testament to understand. Why are they difficult words to understand? You see, as Christians, we say that Christ himself was without sin. That is, that he walked with God the Father all the days of his life, trusting him every single day. But yet when Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It can lead us to this question. Is he not trusting God in this moment as well? I mean, he's asking God, why have you forsaken me? What do we make of this statement? How do we understand Jesus' own words on the cross and his understanding of what he was going through? Is it really something that he doesn't have a clue about what is going on? Because if he doesn't have a clue, then that is a problem for us Christians. Does Jesus really know what's going on on the cross? Well, my argument is, of course, Jesus knows exactly what he's going through. Three times before Jesus entered into Jerusalem, three times he told his disciples, I'm going to Jerusalem and I'm going to be delivered up and killed. You see, it was his mission. I'm going to the cross. I'm going to this point. Secondly, the night in which he was betrayed, Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane. 
And in his prayer, he is pleading with God the Father, take this cup from me. And it's so burdensome on him that he's literally dripping blood. It's like sweating blood. It's such a burden on him. He's so anxious. Well, what is this cup that Jesus is referring to? Well, the cup he refers to in that prayer, as he pleads with God the Father to take it away from him, is the cup of God's wrath. And this cup of wrath was, was, was understood through the prophets of the Old Testament to be God's wrath. And so when he says, take this cup from me, what he's saying is, God, I don't want to deal with the wrath that you're about to pour out on me. This is too much. I don't want to drink it. But do you know what Jesus says right after he says those words? Not my will, but yours be done. See, Jesus had a very clear picture of why he was going to the cross and what he was doing on the cross. The question that Jesus proposed was not necessarily a misunderstanding of why he is on this cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He had a very clear idea of what he was going to do and what he was doing. He was going to endure the wrath of God for the sins of the world. The third thing I want you to know about this phrase is that this phrase comes from Psalm 22, verses 1. King David himself uttered these words when he experienced what it felt like, the forsakenness of God. It's right there in your Old Testament. And so why is Jesus saying these words? Because what he was enduring on the cross, the only thing that he could know, the only thing that he, he knew how to express, the wrath of God being poured out on him, the suffering he was experiencing, the only thing were the very words of Scripture, which is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The why is not a, a questioning God. Why are you doing this to me? It is simply, if anything, further trust in God and his word and enduring the wrath of God. You see, when we see this sound about, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We begin to understand that there's a lot more going on on the cross than maybe we, we tend to think. And we'll see this in the second soundbite, which is I thirst. The second soundbite, I thirst, is indeed not really dramatic. And there's not a whole lot behind it. Now, the Gospel writer of John says this was done to fulfill the Scriptures. And that Scripture comes from Psalm 69, 21, which says, for my, for my thirst, they gave me sour wine to drink. And so when Jesus is saying, I'm thirsty, and then they give him sour wine, he sees this as the fulfillment of Scripture. But indeed, there's something even simpler that I want you to see in this moment. And that is the humanity of Jesus. You know, as, as Christians, we teach Jesus, and you can walk through the life of Jesus, and the things that we tend to focus on are the things that blow our mind. The raising the dead, the healing the blind, the feeding of many on very little, even the teachings of Jesus. All of these things looking towards Jesus' divinity, which in the church we definitely would say, Jesus is indeed God. But when we come to this phrase, I thirst, we tend to just kind of gloss over it. But what I want you not to do is gloss over it. I want you to see Jesus' humanity. All, that is he, all he's enduring on the cross 
the pain, the suffering, all that had been done to him in the days leading up to the cross, the abandonment, the betrayal of Judas, the thorns in his brow, the nails in his hands, the whipping on his back. It shows his humanity. Now why, as Christians, is it important that we uphold the humanity of Jesus. Because we both, the, the, the Christian church, and it's a mystery, says that God is, or Jesus is fully God and fully man. Why is it important that we uphold his humanity? Why is it important that we look at this phrase and see Jesus saying, I thirst? It's this. Because as humans, we were the ones that got ourselves into this mess in the first place. You see, when, when God created mankind, he says, don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For the day you eat of it, you will die. And of course, Adam and Eve disobeyed God. They sinned and brought about death. And everything spiraled out of control from there. Mankind got us into this mess and we needed a man to get us out of it. There's a theologian, a recent theologian, who summarized something an older theologian said, and I want to read it. And I, I actually quote this in 201 because it's vitally important that we understand the humanity of Jesus and why the humanity of Jesus is relevant. He says this, we have, offended an infinite, we have offended an infinite God, so we owe him an infinite debt. But as finite creatures, we are incapable, incapable of repaying that debt. It is a debt that man owes that only God can pay. In other words, we have a God-sized debt, but we are only man-sized. How can we pay? We need a God-sized man to pay. And Jesus, the God-sized man, has paid the God-sized debt. We must see the words of Jesus, I thirst, as capturing his humanity. I think many of us can understand what it's like to thirst. That longing that we have to have water wash over our tongue and satisfy our bodies. This is what Jesus suffered. He's thirsty. It was his humanity. So we see in the first soundbite, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The second soundbite, I thirst. And then the third soundbite, it is finished. The three words we see in our English Bible, it is is finished is actually one word in the original translation. That one word is the word tetelestai. Tetelestai means it is finished. I mean, it's not, it's not that complicated. It's hello, right? That's why we translate it. But it's in the perfect tense. And so if you don't have an English degree, let me just explain to you what the perfect tense means and how and why this is vitally important that it's in the perfect tense. The perfect tense means it is done. It, it, it can't be redone. It can't be changed. There's no changing of mind. It is done. When the clock strikes zero, the game is over. It's the perfect tense. And so when Jesus says to Telestai, what he is saying, that what I have set out to do and to accomplish has been and will forever remain finished. My mission is done. And as you notice... After he utters these words, Jesus dies. Now, what is finished? What is this mission that Jesus set out to accomplish? 
The, simply put, the mission that Jesus set out to accomplish is redemption for sins. Perhaps one of the most overlooked passages of all Scripture is John 3.17. And you can understand why John 3.17 is often overlooked, right? Because we love John 3.16, right? For God so loved the world, He gave His one and only Son, that whoever believed in Him would not perish. But John 3.17 actually helps us really understand how God saves the world. Listen to what he says, and I think it captures the mission of Jesus. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn it, but in order that the world might be saved through him. See, we humans have a sin problem. And this sin problem makes it very difficult to be in relationship with God. We have a debt that needs to be paid. And this is the debt that Jesus himself paid. The debt that we have to pay is our own life. Paul will go on to say the wages of sin is death. Because we sin, we deserve to die. And Jesus, the one who was without sin, decides, I will lay down my life as a sacrifice, an atoning sacrifice for all who look to me. And this is what Jesus did on the cross. And while he is hanging on the cross, enduring the suffering, enduring the wrath of God, enduring the punishment for our sins, when he utters his last breath, which is, it is finished. The sins of those who trust Christ and the wrath of God are satisfied. So Jesus utters, it is finished. Sin has been paid for. The wrath of God has been satisfied. See, when we look at these three sound bites, we come to understand there's far more going on on the cross than just this symbol that we can use move forward in the world. We see that there's a lot more at play. So I gave you three sound bites. Now let's apply these three sound bites to our life. How do these three sound bites change the way in which we live in the world? Here's the first thing that, that this cross changes and these three sound bites changes. Okay? The first thing I want you to see these sound bites change for us is our view of sin. The cross changes our view of sin. Sin is far more serious than we realize. Disobedience to God is far more offending than we typically think. Many of us can go many days sinning and not blink about the decisions that we are making. Eh, no big deal. It didn't hurt anybody. But when we see the God-sized man hanging on the cross saying, I thirst, enduring the suffering that he has, we have to see that it is our sin, even the most mundane sin that put God on the cross. It put him through suffering. Sin requires death. It is far more serious than we think. Far greater. On top of that, there is nothing that you and I can do for our sin. It's far greater than we could ever imagine. Sin is far more damaging than you think. Sin is far much more offending than you typically think. And I say that because it is the very thing that sent God himself to the cross. It changes the way we view sin. The second thing that these sound bites change is the way we view God. The way we view 
God. How do you view your relationship to God? Is it one of fear? Is it one of trepidation? I mean, you, 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 let's, let's take you back to those mundane sins. Let's take you to some of the bigger sins, the sins that you know are wrong, but you commit anyway. When you commit those things, are you quick to go to God? Or are you reluctant to go to God? If you are reluctant to go to God, you have a view of God that is described as exacting, judgmental, hating of sin, and so on. God is not someone that you want to go and climb up into his laps and rest when you find yourself in that sin. But it is my argument, what I want to present to you today, that because Christ went to the cross and was forsaken for you and for me, that indeed our view of God should change from that one of judgment to one of welcoming. You see, we, we often project the anger of God towards our sin. Uh, we project what we experience in this life onto God. But when we see that Christ himself was forsaken, that we see Christ was the one who drank the cup of God's wrath, that there is no more wrath for those who place their faith in Jesus. For those of you, when you sin, for those of you who trust Christ and when you sin, you shouldn't be one of saying, I can't go to God. It should be one, I can go to God. He will receive me. He will not forsake me. He will not abandon me because Christ himself was abandoned for me. It changes the way we view God. If Christ was forsaken for you and the wrath was poured out for you, there's no more forsakenness and there's no more wrath from you. And when you sin, and we do sin, you go to God, sometimes with tears, because you've not trusted God. But you go to God. You climb up into His lap and let Him love you. Let Him love you. Next time you sin, and you sin big, don't be reluctant to go to God. Go to God. His wrath has been poured out on Jesus. The last thing that I want you to see the cross changes is it changes the way we view ourselves. The cross changes the way we view ourselves. You know, we are so often, when we do sin, and this is a problem in the church, to say, oh, I'm just a sinner. And one of the things that my wife and I talk about is we call it this the worm. It's a theology, but it's more a worm anthropology. It's this I am terrible. I can do nothing good. Woe is me. I'm a sinner. And it's just this like, Bleh. like you don't want to be around these people because all they do is wrong and nothing they do is right. And, and I want you to start to see that this is not, the cross changes how we view ourselves and it actually changes from the worm to a much more glorified place. When Jesus uttered, it is finished, that means every sin has been paid for. And that the people who follow after Christ, their identity has been changed. No longer are they known as sinners, they're known as saints. And when we buy into this kind of worm theology, oh, I can do nothing good and woe is me, what we're actually doing is we're actually countering Jesus' words, it is finished. 
And we're taking, we're taking this worm and we're trying to, this, this hatred of our own self and saying, you get better, you, you know, and whatever nasty words you said, because you're trying to motivate obedience. You're trying to hate yourself so that you can somehow get better in life, which we do all the time. But this is not what the cross does. I did this study this week and I thought it was very profound. What do you think the New Testament refers to Christians as? What do you think the primary means from which Christians are, are identified in the New Testament? To those who look to Christ and his crucifixion, what do you think it notifies Christians as? Sinner? Actually, there's only two occasions in the New Testament when, when a writer is writing to Christians where the word sinner is used. The first is from James 4.20. And if you read James, it's like, okay, yeah, he's going to say sinner. And so while we can't just say, yeah, because you sin, you're a sinner. James is just tough, okay? So you can say you're a sinner. That's fine. But here's the thing. The only other, opportunity, only other occasion in which the New Testament refers to Christians as sinners is 1 Timothy 1.15. And this is when Paul is saying, Christ died to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. Paul, Paul is saying that of himself. So, so, so the vast majority of time that Christians are identified, they're not identified as sinners. What do you think that they're identified by? Saints. The redeemed. Justified. Sanctified. The beloved. Let me ask you this question. When you think of yourself, Christian, do you think of yourself more in that worm, I'm a sinner? Or do you think of yourself more as the redeemed, the beloved. There's too many times to count. I don't even have the list of all the times that the, the New Testament identifies Christians as something other than sinner. We need to have a different view of ourselves as Christians. It needs to be a much more glorified view of ourselves. And of course, this is nothing that we have done. It is simply all that Christ has accomplished. It is finished. You're no longer a sinner. You're a saint that happens to sin. So my encouragement to you is to begin to rephrase the way you speak to yourself. Not as a sinner, but as a saint who sins. Because Jesus accomplished all that was needed to accomplish for our sin. And he has redeemed us through his cross. My friends, the three sound bites. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I thirst. And it is finished. Dramatically changes the way we view sin. Dramatically changes the way we view God. And even ourselves. Like Constantine, I can assuredly say to you, in this sign prevail. Not against the armies of Maxentius or armies far greater than you, but in this life, a life that is oftentimes fought day to day, in this sign prevail. And we know without a shadow of doubt, as we will recall and remember next week, that we indeed will prevail because indeed Christ is risen. His death is not the end of him. Let me pray. 
Jesus, your cross is indeed astounding to us. That you were willing to suffer for our sin. All I can do is say thank you. Lord, may this cross not be something that we just kind of flippantly think about. But may it be the thing that changes the way we see everything. You, the way we view ourselves, and even our sin. Well, we, don't even, we don't even begin to grasp just how great our sin is until we see your cross. Thank you for your cross. Thank you for your laying down your life for us. In this we see love.